I'm a landlord myself, so I went to one of my properties for a regular check-in, and one of my tenants were like, hey, my, my toilet's rocking. Yeah, when I flush, uh, water comes out the side, and then he flushed it, and water just gushed out the sides of the toilet onto the floor. And I was like, how long has this been going on? He's like, yeah, about two, three months. Like, uh, I didn't figure it was that important. Of course, the plumber said it was a little too late because all that sewage water has been dropping into the ceiling below of the, of the lower unit. Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. All right, everybody, welcome to the show. Today, we are pumped to bring you Santosh and Anthony. They come from us from Calgary, Alberta. Um, they are investor-friendly, or focused, rather, real estate agents. They're with EXP Realty. Um, we're going to dive deep into many, many things. Super excited to have you both, but we'd love to kick it off with a story. So can you tell us your craziest real estate story, transaction, or experience of any kind that you guys have had thus far? All right. So uh, nothing too crazy, but uh, this one's a pretty recent one that comes to mind. Uh, so uh, I'm a landlord myself. So I went to one of my properties for a regular check-in and one of my tenants were like, hey, my, my toilet's rocking, right? Um, he's like, yeah, when I flush... Uh, water comes out the side and then he flushed it and water just gushed out the sides of the toilet onto the floor. And I was like, how long has this been going on? He's like, yeah, about two, three months. Like, uh, I didn't figure it was that important. Uh, so I was like, oh God. So quickly called someone out, fixed that whole issue. And of course the plumber said it was a little too late because all that sewage water has been dropping into the ceiling below of the, of the lower unit. Um, no. So, so Yeah. So we had to cut open the drywall in the basement ceiling, uh, kind of cut out all the kind of moldy, nasty sections. And right Dude, now, okay, I want to I want to dive into this. Like, <laughs> I did not know you were going to share the story, and I'm so glad you did. I literally have this exact thing happening right now, and okay. I don't know if like all tenants are on the same page trying to unite, but. <laughs> The tenant that I had had the same thing. Yeah. They only had one bathroom and they yeah. had let this go on for almost a year. Wow. So I don't know what the deal is. Like sewage yeah. is raining down. Like yeah. to me, that would be like second number one. Mm -hmm. I am letting my landlord know, right? Exactly. So walk, walk us through. So we have drywall damage. We have sewage leaking. We actually had to non-renew the lease on that tenant so we can get them out because they wanted to be in there still. And I'm like, no, right. <laughs> like this is gross yeah. and not safe. Yeah. No. Yeah. W walk us through the, the, the cost, the process. Like, how do you fix a problem like that? Walk, walk us through the solution. Yeah. Yeah. So generally kind of the order of events for me is when I do my inspection, I, I ask if there's any issues. And thankfully you brought this one up. I, I usually don't check for a rocking toilet. I check the toilet if they leak, um, but that's about it. But luckily he brought this up. So my order of events, since he brought it up, I, I try to see if it's a very, really simple fix. Uh, I usually have a few hand tools on me. Um, and this one wasn't because I knew, okay, if it's been leaking, there's probably something else, something bigger going on. Um, so then I called my kind of go-to plumber um, and they basically charged by the hour. Um, I, I needed to get a couple of other things repaired at the place as well. So I needed a faucet changed out um, along with this bathroom. And it cost me... $580 because you have to take off the, the toilet, clean out everything, reset the whole toilet. I think the flange was all kind of messed up as well. So that that was the cost. And then he, he looked, I showed in the basement. He's like, yep, it's definitely been leaking down there. 
and God knows for how long, because there was like a huge wet spot. And my basement tenant was saying like, hey, this spot kind of has been growing over the past week. Um, so I was like, okay, well, that's not a good, <laughs> that's not a good sign. So um, I got the plumber to cut a nice big hole down there. And he's like, well, that's, he's like, that's nasty water down there. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. your drywall is all soaked up. So um, he basically said, uh, there's, there's a, as long as you just kind of air it out and spray a mold, mold killer, um, kind of shouldn't have any, any issues down the road. And he's like, let the, let the, let the open space kind of air out for a couple of weeks at least before you go in and kind of patch up everything. Uh, but luckily there wasn't any like big sewage down there. It was just kind of like wet. So thankfully, uh, all the yeah, other if you're okay, out. I want to keep diving into this because I think yeah. this could be a learning lesson for both for myself and, and for people listening. So same problem. And the quotes that I'm getting to cut the drywall out, repair the drywall, fix the things. And they're saying, Hey, you got to fix the floor. So on and so forth. It's like $15,000. Oh, so yeah. So your, your numbers seem drastically better. Like I'll take 500 bucks, you know, over, but obviously you got more costs for the drywall and stuff. Can you give us an idea? What would be total budget to Mm -hmm. cut the drywall open, kill the mold and everything in there, patch it back up, paint, et cetera. Uh, I would say my total cost for something like this would be under a thousand dollars because there's no floor damage. It was tiled, um, and it was just a little bit leaking around the toilet flange. So, um, according to the according to the plumber's opinion, like the floor stuff floor is not rotted out or anything. So he's like, it's good to put back on. You don't have ceiling damage either, right? Well, the basement ceiling had to cut out the, um, but other than that, like he he said, it was fine, but. Um, I, I would Did you guys have to do any like, um, uh, because the, the biggest thing that they were saying that I, that I need to do, you know, um, like when I was asking people for advice was like, like, you have to have like a special type of cleanup, you know, because it's sewage, right? Like, so yeah. did you guys have to go through any of that? Because like the quotes I'm uh, getting for that, are like three to five grand. And I'm like, wow. just for that piece. Uh, according to my plumber, no. Cause he said it wasn't that major where there's like, yeah. Uh, your your business sitting on the ceiling or something like that. It was just right. liquids. <laughs> um, and, and most, the bulk of it was going down the drains. Uh, so he's, he said, as long as we cut out all the stained sections and basically repatch, you're, you're basically fine. Um, so, and, and he Love said he, he, come, he originally comes from a restoration background and he, he didn't feel like it was a something to freak out about. So he, he said it's, it's fine. <laughs> cool. I might have to have you send your guy down from, from Canada. Oh. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Tim. I was going to say, Matt, um, from, uh, from being, um, the REOs that we've done, like I have so much mold remediation experience. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Um, it is so ridiculously overpriced. It is absurd. So, I mean, I've seen what they do. I know exactly what they do. It's very, very, very simple. Basically you remove the drywall, you clean, yeah the studs, then you spray mold control, and then you put some oil-based paint on there. They basically, they tend to have like 18 to 22 year olds doing it. They charge $10,000, to have it done. And it's a very cheap and very quick process. You probably do that and then just have someone like for a hundred bucks come and inspect it and make sure it's, it's clean. If it, yeah, you want a third degree cert. Awesome. I think something something we're like something that's really overpriced here would be asbestos remediation. Oh yeah, like it just costs a fortune. 
Yeah, there's no and, doubt. And it's the same, like 18 to 22. Well, yeah. well usually, usually you just don't get rid of it. Um, you know, asbestos is only yeah. bad if you move it. Well, when you do um, <laughs> so, I mean, if there's asbestos tile, we'll, we'll, we'll tile yeah. right over it, right? So <laughs> Yeah. It's usually a problem during renovations in, in these old houses. When you want to change the layout or open up a wall, make it open concept, and you usually run into asbestos. So. Totally, especially in those older homes, for sure. Yeah. So you guys are in Canada, which gives us the unique ability, and you're in the multifamily space, the unique ability to ask you a question surrounding Canada versus the United States. If you have a million dollars, which used to sound like a lot of money, but if you have a million dollars, would you invest in the U.S. or would you invest in Canada? Like, What would you see as being the differences? I think it depends what you're looking for because uh, in our market, uh, in Calgary, we're a bit more of a balanced market, but in general, in Canada, we see lower cash flow than the U.S., uh, excluding California. I know your market doesn't read cash flow very well, but in general, like we see cheaper cost per unit, higher cash flow in the U.S. But Canada historically has appreciated more. So it's kind of a balance, right? You're always giving something and getting something away. I mean, for us, the answer is fairly easy because we already live here. Um, I think that if we were living in the US, I'm not sure that I would start by investing in Canada, but I would eventually want to invest in Canada to diversify my portfolio, right? Uh, same thing as for us, as we grow, I'm sure we're gonna start to look at opportunities in the US as well. Yeah, and just to, just to kind of add on, I think, like what Anthony said, it depends. Um, but I think in every investor's portfolio, it's good to have uh, a mixture of kind of cash flowing properties and properties that are kind of set up for the appreciation game, right? Um, and especially in some of Canada's larger markets like Toronto and Vancouver, it's more of the appreciation game that you're going after, not so much the cash flow, right? Um, whereas I know there's also plenty of opportunities in the US for cash flowing properties. If you go to I don't know, Texas or Arizona or those places, I hear there's there's great opportunities for cash flow. So it kind of really depends on what you're looking for, right? So I'd have a mix of both ideally. But it is an extra way to diversify for sure. So tell us about the property taxes. What are the property taxes like in Canada? That varies a lot as well, depending where you are. Um, Quebec, Ontario, for example, have much higher taxes than we have in Alberta. Uh, in Alberta, we have a very good uh, kind of framework for that. Our property taxes are reasonable. We have no sales tax, zero. Uh, the lowest income tax. What is reasonable? So for tell me what reasonable five hundred thousand dollar house. We're looking at around three thousand dollar a year for property tax. So yeah, pretty good. Um, but you know that those that are for single family like five thousand for the same house. So yeah. Yeah, super reasonable for me. I'm from Chicago, man. So like a two hundred fifty thousand dollars house is like four thousand dollars in taxes. So, yeah, that's not cheap. Um, interesting. So I'm going to take you guys in a totally different direction here than you guys are expecting. But I was having this conversation the other day, so I'm going to put you guys on the spot a little bit. Feel free to pass on this one. But since we're doing U.S. versus Canada, what are your thoughts on the parliamentary system versus the presidential system? I'm going to let Anthony take this one. I think, I think you follow politics a lot more. Than yeah, so I'm not a huge political buff, but we do have a fairly separate system, uh, like different system, especially when it comes to parties, right? Because you guys got like the two main parties, you know, Democrats and Republicans and always the two same parties. Uh, here you kind of never know because we've got like 
at least three main parties and a few that are strong enough where they could but potentially have a chance to uh, to gain traction. So uh, it's a little, little bit of a more different system. I, I find it gives the opportunity to a smaller party to grow easier, right? Like new ideas. Um, but that's probably where I'll stop my, uh, my commentary on that because I, I don't know enough about the intricacy of the US system to really comment on it. Uh, but it definitely has some interesting differences. Oh, no Sorry for putting you on the spot. Um, you know, so America actually established a ton of democracies throughout the 1900s. And the democracies that they established were parliamentary systems. They weren't presidential systems. So I think that shows you a lot. Um, <laughs> so I think there's a lot of weaknesses with the American governmental system. I was just getting your um, feedback on it. Let's get back on topic here. Um, so you guys are investor-focused agents. Um, Tell us a little bit about your business model. Or do you guys work exclusively with investors on the buy side? Or just give me an idea what what kind of business yeah, you're Yeah, so, so by investor focus, I mean, we, we ideally prefer to work with investors, but that is, but we still we still do work with homeowners who are looking to buy their first property. Uh, we, don't, we don't turn them away or anything, but kind of the bulk of our business is coming from investors who are looking to buy or possibly sell and kind of upgrade. Uh, so we get a lot of uh, listings that are like flips or landlord rented out properties, uh, tenant occupied stuff, um, or distressed properties that a landlord has just given up type of thing. Right. So there's always, uh, people on either side of the spectrum. So, uh, there's, there's kind of the distressed property and then there's the person looking to buy a distressed property as well. Right. So we, we kind of work with across the gamut, so to speak. Uh, anywhere from the kind of single family, one unit, all the way to the multifamily space. So. Love it. So this is very different than what I do, generally speaking. Like we share the same, like we help people buy houses. When it comes to investing, like I, occasionally I'll bring investment deals to investors, but I'm not investor focused in that in that same way. So walk me through some of the fiduciary concepts. Like you're out chasing deals, people that you your clients are chasing deals, do you process that like I always have to show every deals to my clients first, no matter what? What do you do if you and your client want the same deal? Can you walk us through like how you balance fiduciary duty and your own interest in buying investments? Yeah, obviously we have ethics as part of being licensed as a realtor. And um, yeah, kind of as you, it, it depends on the situation, right? So if we have a client, for example, that's looking for, a rental property in a certain area of, of town um, with certain criteria, and we are also looking for the same thing and we see a good deal, we have to show it to them first, right? Like we have to run it by them, uh, get them to check it out. Now, if they don't want it, if they're not interested, then we can jump in and, and take on that property. Um, in the event where we have no client looking for what we're looking for, uh, let's say either Santosha or I decide to go look for 50 plus unit apartment building, and right now we don't have any client looking for it, then we don't really have to do that process, right? So it, it depends, but essentially, as soon as there's a conflict of interest that arises, our clients always get priority. That's really important for us being investor focused. Like we, we have to deal with that reality, so. All right, that makes sense. Is there any special forms that you need to fill out if there's something like that? Like the, the first thing that pops into my mind is like if I submit two offers on a house with two different clients, I need to fill out the contemporaneous offer form or something like that. Is there anything you need to do or do you just, you're just essentially passing it on to your client and you just sit it out? 
Well, so first of all, we wouldn't be, uh, let's say I have a client that wants to offer on the same house as me. Uh, we would have to separate and refer them to a different agent because uh, I can't be acting for myself and a client. Uh, anytime we make an offer for ourselves, we do have to disclose that we are a realtor to a seller uh, or seller's realtor, depending on the case. So yeah, we do have a form to fill for to fill out in those situations. There's some uh, some documentation. The, kind of the magic mantra is disclose, disclose, disclose. So yeah, uh, yeah, you, you can never disclose uh, too much, I guess. Absolutely, without a doubt. Um, so cool. Like, what kind of most people we talk to in Canada are doing multifamily. That seems to be um, the main market driving for 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 investors up there. Are, are you guys doing multifamily? It tends to be value add multifamily. Almost everybody in Canada we talk to so is that your, your guys' model as well. In Calgary, we have kind of a unique situation, I think, for multifamily because the larger multifamily, like five units and up, actually performs worst in terms of uh, percentage numbers, like return on investment numbers, than the two to four unit. The single unit stuff is horrible as well, right? But we have a weird kind of sweet spot where two to four units is the best performing stuff for Calgary. Uh, it doesn't mean it makes no sense to buy multifamily because there's a variety of reasons to do that, right? Uh, but the return on investment are stronger on those products. So that's mostly what we're working with. Uh, that'd be like fourplexes, uh, suited properties, like adding basement suites or converting legal suites to legal suites, things like that. Yeah, and, and just to add on to that, the reason why these multifamilies don't seem to make sense is uh, they've, they've kind of gotten overvalued over the years, and especially with the COVID kind of boom in prices, they really shot up in value. And then on top of that, to close on a commercial property, the costs are quite a bit more than a residential property, so like a two to four unit. And so if you, by the time you add in all these extra costs, and then um, lenders usually want to see an environmental assessment as well on, on a piece of land. So you have having to foot all these bills, and by the time you're everything's said and done, you're actually paying a lot more than than what it's worth. So whereas if you're buying, for example, a four unit, which is kind of the limit for a residential property, uh, you basically pay none of that. You pay um, maybe five hundred dollars to get a home inspection when you buy it, and about fifteen hundred bucks to a lawyer to close on the property. That's it. So <laughs> the costs are much lower. Uh, for these fourplexes, uh, relatively speaking, for the fourplexes versus the multifamily, five plus type of buildings. And another thing too, and, and that kind of situation is more unique to Calgary and Edmonton, the two uh, large cities in Alberta. The, the smaller markets kind of don't necessarily follow that rule. But the thing with Calgary and Edmonton, especially Calgary, is we actually don't have a lot of apartment buildings. The city kind of grew as sprawling suburbs with single family houses everywhere. So relatively speaking, we have very few apartment buildings. Like if you fly over Calgary and if you fly over Toronto, like Toronto has like seas of apartment buildings, we have like sea of houses. So it kind of created that um, imbalance in the market where there's like strong demand for the multi, but there isn't a lot of supply. So a lot of it is older buildings kind of inner cities. It's not a lot of new construction in that space. Absolutely. Um, so curious, I mean, Anthony, you mentioned this kind of offhand a little bit before, um, but you're, you're talking about the legality of a unit. So I would actually like some more clarity there just to see what is a legal unit in Canada. Yeah, so that was uh, talking more specifically around basement suites. So in Calgary, we, it's pretty common to add an apartment to the basement of a house. 
but historically it was very difficult to do. There was a lot of red tape around that process, which created a situation where most people did it illegally. They just added a suite, didn't actually follow codes, didn't register it with the city. Uh, the last estimates I saw, I think there was something, and you can back me out, Santosh, but uh, like 80 to 90,000 illegal suites, I think. And there was like a thousand legal suites. That's like as of three three years ago, I believe. Um, so that forced the city to do something about it. And what they did is they brought an opportunity for people with illegal suite to legalize them by only meeting essentially the fire code. So essentially the city was like, look, we have a problem. Uh, we need those suites to be safe. So as long as you can prove us that they're safe in meeting a few requirements, then we'll allow you to actually register them and make them legal. Um, so we're doing a lot of that right now in Calgary. It's a limited time pro uh, program. Um, so yeah, it, it makes sense for that yeah. instead of having to tear down a whole suite and start from scratch, you can do a few upgrades, you know, maybe adding smoke alarms or making sure windows are big enough, things like that, and bring them up to standard. So. Yeah, just to this, add uh, on, like the requirements are way less compared to if you're building a brand new suite. Uh, and so it's also kind of what's driving the demand for a lot of investors to come and pick up illegal suites and legalize them because it's a it's a really simple way to get a a, a value in the uh, a boost in the value of the property. Yeah, the because the moment you legalize it, your value shoots up and it's worth a lot more because somebody's done the hard part for you, right? Um, so. Yeah, that's it's it's really popular among investors to buy illegal suites versus having to build a brand new suite from scratch because the costs are much higher. Right. This leads me to a question I I wasn't planning on asking. So you essentially see the flow of things, and like obviously the point of good governance is to keep people safe. You know, allow for the you know generally allow for as m the most amount of freedom possible to people while, you know, not letting things get out of hand, right? Sometimes good governance happens, sometimes it doesn't. In this case, maybe good governance wasn't happening because there was a need in the city for these units, clearly, yeah. and, you know, the restrictions made it almost impossible. So people took matters in their own hands and created 80,000 illegal suites. So on a philosophical note, I'm not asking you, would you recommend people break the law or not follow building codes or so on and so forth? But do you think... Like it's a good thing if like if there's a need in a city that the city doesn't address, if people just do their thing and eventually the city has to kind of, you know, come to it. I I think it depends, but I think rather than kind of just doing it illegally right off the bat and then hoping it gets kind of accepted, uh, I think it would make more, it'd be more meaningful if kind of you went to a landlord union or or, or something of that sort in your area and reached out to the government if the government's not taking action to address or fill like address the issue right uh, rather than just going out and just building illegal suites across the board uh, because there, we we did have an incident in calgary i think it's probably about three years ago where someone basically died in the basement when a fire broke out because they couldn't get out and that's kind of what started that kind of that's kind of what woke the city officials up they're like okay well i guess we got to do something about it because uh, the city kind of knew that there was a lot of illegal suites, but they just kind of closed closed one eye um, until that incident happened and people started speaking out and like, hey, like there, this is real people living down here and we can't live in you know slumlordy conditions, right? Because some of these properties are in pretty rough shape. 
Um, yeah. Yeah. To answer your question, I would reach out to to the officials rather than just go ahead and. That's a really good idea, and it just shows my ignorance. Like, are there like landlord unions? Like, maybe there are up there. Like, I've never heard no, of one down here. But now it's like if there's associations. Not... So we have like uh, yeah associations that lobby. Like we have one called the Calgary Residential Rental Association, and they actively lobby governments or. Uh, city officials to push changes like that through. Um, so definitely, like that's a great recommendation from Santos is to like join those groups and have your voice heard, right? Because they they actually do put a lot of pressure. Yeah, yeah. They've got more yeah. negotiating power than just you going directly to the city, right? So exactly, which usually like they're like, oh, here's another real estate investor yeah. wants more housing to make more money. Yeah. That greedy yeah. punk, you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> all right. So you guys on the pre-call had talked about your guys's, you know, like you, you, people approach you and they want to invest, but then there's all this fear that strikes them. And so they're, they're giving you their dreams and their ideals, their end goals, but then sometimes their fear is keeping them from reaching those goals. So can you talk us through how you help a client overcome their fear of buying a multifamily property and, you know, give us some examples of what's worked? Yeah. So one one that comes to mind is a client that we very recently helped. Uh, he's actually he just he just uh, closed on his well went firm on his first two unit property. I want to say a couple of weeks ago now, so we're very excited for him. But he approached us basically through our I think it was through Instagram. He reached out and uh, he he said, "Hey, I've been following the content that you've been putting out, and like you know, I'm I'm new to this whole thing, but I'm I'm really interested. I want to get out of my job that I kind of hate doing." So. Um, when he said that, first thing I said is, all right, uh, let's meet up for a coffee. I just want to hear you out, right? I want to know where you're at, how how I can make this work. And uh, that's what I did. And then Anthony also did that a couple of times. And, it, and, and to reiterate, it took a couple of times, of, I think more than that, where we were meeting him for coffee and kind of put answering all his questions, right? And I think that's important to, to do with a, with a new investor. Because let's face it, real estate investing can be intimidating. There's a lot of numbers. It's a there's a lot of new terms. If you're new to the whole space, um, and you're just relying on us as as the experts to kind of find you the right property, right? So, for anyone who's looking to get their first property, I would say find find a find a, a, a reputable realtor or an expert in your area. Seek a mentor of some sort, and go to them and talk to them first. Get all your fears answered, but also remember that at the end, end of the day, you're the one who's got to pull the trigger and we can't pull the trigger for you. We can find you all these amazing deals, right? But you've got to take action and that's just something that you have to do, right? Um, so, and we, we answered all those questions and when we walked through properties with him, we, we showed him a bunch of properties. What we did was we, we highlighted some of like the pros of this property and the cons of the property, right? So we're not just showing him like, hey, this property is all all roses. We're also showing him kind of like, hey, these could be potential problems that you could encounter down the road, right? That doesn't necessarily make this property a terrible investment. It's just something that you need to budget for and account for to the purchase price. So things like that are something we find new investors appreciate. Um, and that's kind of makes makes us stand out among among the other realtors in this space. Um, and then after that, we we also have a big, pretty big network of basically all your trades that you need, your your contractors, uh, whether you need a plumber, electrician, um, and just just the fact of having this network, the 
clients really value that because they're like, all right, okay. After I buy this house, you know, if, if my pipe bursts, I can call, I can call Santosh and he'll have a solid plumber for me ready to go. Right. Like I don't need to um, freak out as a new landlord. So stuff like that's what makes us stand out. And uh, I think clients appreciate it. Yeah. Cause I mean, for new investors, they don't know where to start, right? They have so many things to figure out. They have to figure out what they want to buy. They have to figure out which lawyer am I using, which electrician am I using? Like it's, it's overwhelming for a lot of people, right? So we try to make it easier for them. And because we've been there ourselves, like we know what it is, right? Like we've been at that stage where the new investors are when we bought our first property and we didn't know where to start either, right? So that's how we try to view it is to put ourselves in their shoes of how we felt when we bought our first property. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I was just gonna say, like, like I try to, I, at least for me, uh, when I when I bring clients on showings, I try to get feedback from them. I'm like, all right, tell me, what did you like about it, and what did you not like, right? Um, and maybe they'll be like, oh, I don't really like the two bedroom type of layout, or I want the two, three bedroom. So that kind of allows us to narrow it down as well, rather than just kind of like winging it and hoping they would like one of the properties, right? So. <laughs> Cool. That makes sense. Um, so you guys mentioned that you help people overcome the fear of purchasing their first income property. Um, what other mindset issues do you think um, a lot of these first-time buyers have to overcome? And how do you help them through it? Okay. So uh, I guess I'll start. So I think the biggest mindset issue, when especially for newer investors, are like, All right, what if my investment like you know drops like 50% in value? What if the market crashes and absolutely just gets like destroyed, right? Uh, like the day after I buy it. <laughs> and that's kind of the most common fear that I run across. Um, what if I can't find how, how I address that? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Or, or the nightmare tenant. What if I get a nightmare tenant that just like, you know, yeah. takes a sledgehammer to every single wall? <laughs> um, how how, how uh, we try to address that is educate them on the fundamentals of real estate, right? Uh, obviously we don't give them full, full, uh, uh, we don't give them full course, but we do take the time to explain to them, Hey, real estate is a long-term game, right? You know, there's always going to be your little ups and downs in the market, right? And then we've, when you've got your, your kind of boom period, yeah, your value is going to shoot up. And then when you, when you have your bus values could drop, right? And they could drop a fair bit, but real estate tends to go up in the long run and you just got to stick it out, right? You got to, you got to. You got to just survive these periods and then you cash out when it's the right time to do so, right? When the market's going on, on the upswing, that's when you cash out or you upgrade, right? Um, and that kind of helps people, uh, it helps calm their fears, I find. Uh, and then as, as far as tenants go, if they're like, oh, what if my tenant destroys the property? What if my tenant does this, tenant does that? We're like, well, the most important thing is tenant screening, right? Make sure you have all your particulars, right? Make sure you have their piece of photo ID so you know who to go after and they're not giving you fake ID, right? Uh, make sure you pull a credit report. Make sure you do all your tenant screening effectively, right? And if you're not confident in doing that, then we also give them referrals for property managers that we trust who do a solid job, right? Um, if they want to self-manage and kind of learn the process, us being landlords ourselves, we walk them through the process. Be like, hey, this is what you do. These are the questions you can ask. This is how you, you, you can get a good feel for whether this tenant's going to work and so on and so forth. So that's kind of how we, we deal with their mindset issues and overcoming their fears. So. so 
a question I have. So you, you have this potential client who's just riddled with fear and you're doing everything in your power to deliver great advice. They continue with fear. Is there ever a point where you're just like, I think you're a little bit too scared. I think you should just sit on the sidelines. Um, I've like, uh, I've personally had one client <laughs> who's been really like a nervous wreck about every single thing. Um, uh, and he, he did find a property, so it did work, <laughs> but for me, it's, it's, it takes time for some people, for some people, they're more confident to pull the trigger pretty soon. And for some people it could take six months, right? Uh, and for me, it doesn't matter. I try to stick it out with every single client and like understand that, you know, Hey, I was once there, I may not have been as nervous as client XYZ, but I was still at that point. Right. Um, and I was, I always tell myself like, okay, they're, they're going to get into their first property and then they're going to see that, okay, this wasn't as scary as I thought. Right. So, um, yeah. Is there ever a point had, though you're like, Hey, there's a lot of make money ways to make money in real estate. Maybe you should be a private money lender or maybe, <laughs> you know, I mean, sometimes it's a sign too, that you might be looking at the wrong strategy for them, right? Like if they're really stressed out about doing a flip, for example, yeah. well, maybe you should be looking at the buy and hold, or maybe you should be looking like, let's say you're looking at buying an older property. Well, maybe a new build is right for them, right? Cause everyone's got different risk tolerance. And because we're such relationship based and long-term based, right? Cause we want investors to have success. We have to find a way that's going to work for them. If we get them into something that's incompatible with their goals or their risk level, they're not going to want to buy again, right? Like the whole idea for us is the, the more money they make, the better experience they have, the better it's going to be for us. So yeah, 100%. sometimes it's just a Because I'm just thinking like, things, so. if, they're, if they're a nervous wreck and then they buy it and they're still a nervous wreck, it's like the whole purpose of owning real estate, in my opinion, is the freedom of the thing, right? The yeah. cash flow yeah. and the... And the and if, you know, if, if you're just perpetuating a life of, of anxiety, um, yeah. so you, know, you ever like along those lines, right? Like you can never exactly risk, but you can control it as much as you can. Do you guys do anything with like triple net commercial? Like, have you guys ever just been like, Hey, you know, go buy triple net commercial. Like they take care of everything. No, uh, we, we don't do commercial, uh, like retail or that sort of stuff. So it's just a multifamily. And I mean, it, honestly, for especially for a market, I can't speak for all the markets, but for us, it's like the retirement strategy, usually those triple net lease and things like that, because they, they have very low returns, but they're very easy to scale, right? So we find it's usually retiring investors for, for a market here that go and invest in those. So I'm going to ask you guys a question. This is an oddball question coming out of the weeds here. You have three things you can choose from. You only get one. So you got your relationships. You got your skills, which includes your knowledge base, and you got your portfolio. You can only pick one. The other two are going to get wiped out as of midnight tonight. Which one do you pick? I think the the, the relationships, because I would want to say the experience, but really relationship is kind of your experience because the portfolio, you can, you can rebuild, right? Like you wipe out everything from under my feet tomorrow. It's going to suck, but I'll rebuild it. The skills you can acquire too, yeah. you can do trainings, you can do, but the relationships are the ones that take the longest. Like the experience is what takes a lot of time and that's where the real wisdom is, I think. So. Yeah, I was gonna say the same thing. Uh, I think that your net, you know, the, the saying, your network is your net worth, right? 
so I think I can always go back to my network and build myself back up if I lost my portfolio and I lost everything that was in my head. <laughs> Which is pretty crazy, right? I mean, like you guys are multifamily investors. And so your guys' portfolios probably spit out a decent amount of cash and you probably have a fair bit of equity in that portfolio. You know, I'm not going to spit out numbers unless if, unless if you want me to, but like, I think for those listening who may not know, like, I mean, that's a sizable loss for you guys to, to give up. And it was like, not even a thought. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it would be painful, but you would recover from that, right? Like you can take any very successful person right now. Like think of like the Elon Musk of the world, Donald Trump, whatever you want to think of and take everything they have away from them. And I'm, I'm willing to bet pretty fast they're going to be back to where they are or close to it. Yeah. And this is such an interesting thing to talk about because I just heard a Dave Ramsey short, or maybe it was a mid or whatever on, I think it was probably YouTube. And it was like 79% of millionaires right now, either in the U S or in the world are self-made and another 10, basically no inheritance. The other 10% inherited money, but it was so little, it was inconsequential to their, to their becoming a millionaire. So it was like 89% of, of the wealthy people in, in, you know, the U S let's say are self-made. And what's interesting is as we ask th these types of questions to successful people, they immediately say, I'd give up essentially my wealth, my portfolio for my relationships. And yet when you talk to the common person, they say, well, the reason they are where they are is because of their inheritance or their money or whatever. Right. And yeah. wealthy people say, say, say differently. Well, I think a lot of people forget about the process. They look at where people are today, but they don't look at what they've been through to be there today, right? And if you look only at the result and not the process, of course you're gonna miss on that. You think that they're wealthy because they had money or whatever reason, right? Yeah, this analogy is just starting to run through my mind right now. Like, I don't know if you guys have ever watched, like I, I'm in this mode right now where I, I wanna become fit. And so I'm like studying all the psychology of it. And you know, have you guys seen those those videos where you have like the trainer that gets fat on purpose? so that they can relate to their constituents and then they lose weight together. Have you guys seen those? No, I haven't. And, yeah, yeah, I've seen a couple of YouTube ones. Yeah, and so it's like, it kind of gives me this idea. Like, I mean, you could give uh, a million dollars to a person that has bad money habits and they're going to blow it. And then you could take all the money away from a wealthy person and they're going to get it back, right? Like, just like if you yeah. gave a skinny body to a, a fat-minded person, if there's such a thing. And... And uh, they'll gain the they'll gain the fat right back, and then you could add fat to a skinny minded person, and they'll they'll be skinny in six months again. Yeah, totally crazy. So, what do you guys see as the future for you guys in investing over there in Canada? Yeah. So, in terms of the future, I think especially in Calgary, uh, we're seeing a ton of migration into the province into Alberta. Uh, so I'm like, we have a pretty optimistic outlook for the Calgary and Alberta real estate market in general, uh, because as of right now, a lot of markets in Canada, such as Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, uh, these are still really overvalued, even though they've seen some pretty substantial uh, drop in values. And Calgary, what's what's drawing people into Calgary is the affordability factor. And that a lot of jobs are coming into Calgary now because, well, we have pretty low taxes. Uh, the province still has lots of room to grow. There's We have tons of land outside the city. If you look at Calgary on the map, like you've, you've got endless farmland and, and 
yeah, lots of space to expand. So, and uh, we don't have land transfer taxes. When you buy a property, it's, it's pretty affordable. So all these factors are bringing jobs, employers, all these tech, tech companies are moving into Calgary. I don't know if we're going to be the next Silicon Valley, but at least we might be something close to that. Um, and so we see a pretty optimistic outlook for Calgary's real estate market. Yeah, the fundamentals uh, are we, very we're strong. Only expecting, like, exactly. Because that, and, we're, we're only expecting our business to grow uh, in, the, in the future. Because at the beginning of COVID, there was a lot of price growth in the rest of Canada that was not driven on fundamentals, uh, right? Like the whole COVID craze made the property value go up. But what a lot of people missing or forgot about Calgary is we actually started to have a recovery just before that, uh, coming out of a seven-year downturn. Um, so like all the key indicators are very strong. So we, we really expect that it's, it's going to be like, at least in the medium term, maybe not the next year, but the next few years will be very good here. And by the way, people want to move to, right. And right now the top interprovincial migration is, uh, is Alberta. Awesome. So that's like your Florida, I guess. Um, yeah, <laughs> cool. No, um, <laughs> I was about to say, it sounds a little different, but um, <laughs> it makes sense. Um, cool. Um, so let's kind of get into the state of the market, actually. So, I mean, you're, you're projecting that things are kind of, I mean, obviously nobody has a crystal ball. Um, I would be a little bit more bearish on, on my market than you guys are kind of indicating at the moment. Um, we just did raise the interest rates again. Obviously, yeah. we're in a different country, so I'm not sure where you guys are at. But like, what are you, what are you guys thinking? Like, if you had a crystal ball, what were your thoughts? Obviously, we're not going to hold you to it. Yeah, if I could, if I could predict where values would be, I think they're going to like our, our interest rates have been kind of steadily creeping up as well. Uh, and so, I think probably the next six months we're going to kind of flatline for another year, and then uh, I think we could actually see price growth maybe two years down the road, uh, kind of a gradual increase from there. That's kind of I had to predict. <laughs> that's what I would say. Yeah, that's my same prediction too. And and the, yeah, and the only thing that's probably going to keep our values flat is the high interest rates. And once those start coming back down, it's gonna it's gonna bring uh, it's gonna drive prices up again. So awesome. Well, thank you for the clarity there. Um, I'm intrigued to see how everything plays out over the next 12 to 18 months. I think it's going to be a very very interesting time period for everybody. Um, cool. So, like, what are you guys working on building now? Like um, in terms of business, like what is your vision for the next 12 months? So I've got the redevelopment project right now uh, going on. We we did a land assembly over many years, uh, purchased like six lots in a good good area in our city. So we're looking at uh, uh, tearing down those houses, like doing uh, like rezoning the area and building uh, some uh, higher density townhouses with uh, basement suites. So that's kind of the main main thing I'm working on and. How about you, Santosh? Same thing, or yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't have a big project on the go like Anthony. Uh, I'm just working on a uh, two to four unit conversion myself. Uh, that's about it. So it's a, it's currently a duplex, and I'm adding basement suites, uh, kind of separating out the, the upper units to be their own individual units, and then adding two basement suites uh, from scratch. So that's kind of what I'm working on. Oh, cool. So you, I mean, you guys both kind of answered like what you're working on right now. I'm talking like big yeah. plans. Like what is oh, your vision? What do you want to do? What do you want to accomplish? Oh. What are your goals? Like what are your big yeah. dreams for the next 12 to 18 months? Not like what are you actually working on physically now? Okay. 12, 12 to 18 months out. Uh, we're 
Uh, I want to pick up uh, two more kind of fourplexes. That's kind of uh, the, proper, the, the number of units that I like. Uh, one fourplex at a time. Um, because for the for the reasons we mentioned earlier, like they cash flow very well. They're in the sweet. They're in a sweet spot versus the five plus units. Um, and so I'm t- and I'm looking to take on some partners and go into those properties and um, ideally run down properties that we can go in and renovate. Um, it's kind of the style I prefer. So just to add to my portfolio and have a cash flow where if I you know if I wanted to say I'm I'm quitting working as a realtor tomorrow. I could live a very, very, very comfortable life. So that's, that's, I'm, I'm a pretty simple guy, so I don't have like super big uh, ambitions or anything. So. <laughs> so I know we've talked about multifamily being difficult in Calgary, but my goals for the next like 12, 24 months is actually to try to pick up a 10 to 24 unit building, uh, which is difficult because the returns are hard to actually make work. Right. But I'm hoping that with the interest rates going up now and some of the uncertainty, there might be a certain window of opportunity maybe in the next six months, uh, maybe 12 months, we'll see. And I'm just hoping that, you know, one of those properties will actually work out, so. I am also hoping for a window. Oh, well, my market's not, so me and Matt are actually not in the same market. Matt's in California, I'm in Illinois. Oh, sorry. Uh, my market's a bit more affordable. Um, in terms of purchase price, but it's balanced out by taxes. Right. Um, so, I mean, awesome. I mean, Chicago is one of the best cities in the world. So we get that benefit. But in order to live here, we have to pay absurd taxes, um, not only property taxes, but the sales taxes are crazy, too. I'm sure the audience really cares about Chicago taxes. So let's <laughs> move on. Um, <laughs> That's what we do, I guess. Um, so, I mean, you mentioned, um, Santosh mentioned earlier that you're kind of a simple dude. So I'm going to throw this one at you. Like if you had a billion dollars and a hundred lifetimes of cash flow, what would you do with your time? And, and same question you, Anthony, but. Yeah. So like if I, if I had a lot of time in the world, uh, I'd be traveling and I'm really into uh, kind of environmental conservation. So uh, kind of forest rehabilitation or I'll do like some, some sort of forestry work. That would be kind of my retirement gig where I just chill out and, you know, uh, so that's what I would do if I had all the money in the world and money wasn't really an issue and had loads of time, um, that, and I'd probably do some animal rescue work as well. So that's where you'd find me deep in the woods or helping out with animals, <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> well, I definitely, uh, travel more as well. I, I do enjoy traveling a lot. Uh, one of the thing I would like to do. Uh, is, you know, I think that money should be used to uh, improve the world we live in, right? So uh, if I had like tons of cash flow, like in same amount of money, like you said, I think I would try to find causes that can make a positive impact, like whether it be like technology investment uh, that help um, like environmental causes, things like that. Like I would like essentially to turn into a venture capitalist that can take the risk of like, putting money into good companies, even if they don't actually provide a return, so. What a great answer. Um, you know, the venture capital rates, I, I think are so interesting. You know, they're like, oh, you do a hundred of them, you lose on 98 yeah, of them, insane. but you know, the two that you actually hit on, they actually pay for the other 98. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it sounds like a, a super interesting gig. Um, well, thank you guys both so much. Like um, Anthony and Santosh, 
Thank you so much for giving us a glimpse into your life and into your business, Thanks giving us some you. ideas on the differences between Canada and the United States. Um, we will have easy access to your guys' information in the show notes so the audience could reach out to you. And, and to those of you out there chasing freedom, freedom is accomplished one action at a time. So go out there, commit to taking one action, do so within the next seven days. Tell somebody you know that can hold you accountable. And before you know it, you too will be living a life of freedom. So thank you for tuning in and we'll catch you on the next one.